Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, we are beginning a journey this week, as the title indicates, from nose to tail. We are going to take a fantastic journey through the digestive system. Uh, along the way, we'll even, uh, we'll even talk to a special guest. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to begin where it all starts, with the nose, with the mouth, with the entry point to the uh, gastrointestinal highway. Yeah, and I really wanted to try to imagine this journey we're about to take with something that was sort of a spectacular food. Spectacular in the sense that it would really need a lot of digestive juices to break down. And so immediately I thought about the haggis. Ah, the haggis. This is a a sheep stomach uh, stuffed with uh, meat and barley. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's known as a savory pudding. Mm -hmm. It does contain sheep's pluck. Now, which is heart, liver, and lungs. Obviously, you are a vegetarian now, but have you had haggis? No, I have not. You have not? So it's, you've just you've gazed at it from far. Well, you know, there's the Robert Burns poem. Um, oh, to a haggis? To a haggis, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it's something that's celebrated in, in, in uh, poetry. You have to sort of examine uh, along the digestive tract, right? Yeah, I mean, you're digesting the digestive tract. To a certain extent. Essentially. Yeah. Because, yes, traditionally, this this sheep's pluck, which is heart, liver, and lungs, which is minced with onion, oatmeal, spices, and salt, uh, mixed with stock, it is all then dumped into the lining of an animal's stomach where it simmers for about three hours. And really, I mean, we everyone likes to have fun with the haggis, but, I mean, there are a lot of, of different uh, meats uh, and and. Tasty dishes, even that uh, that come from uh, from organs and from the the guts of animals, and you know you could make a, a very strong argument that we should be eating more guts. You could, I don't know if you should. Well, th- th- there's a, there's certainly a big uh, ethical debate there to be had as well. But yeah. I mean, from the standpoint of say a dog or a cat, the, that's the, the starting place with the guts. You go straight for the soft meats. You go for the uh, the organs. Yeah, and I can't make fun of it too much because here in America we have something called turducken. Right, yes. which is the turkey, chicken, and duck all stuffed in each other, uh, wrapped in an enigma. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so what happens if you're Robert Burns and you're celebrating your favorite haggis and you've got a fork full of it and you're about to put it into your mouth? Well, uh, you're going to want to smell it. I mean, you are going to smell it. There's <laughs> there's, there's no uh, mistaking that. But that this is certainly the first step because ultimately when, we, when we're talking about taste and smell, mm-hmm. we're talking about chemical analysis. Think of us again as less as the refined human, you know, divine being that is into tasting uh, wonderful foods and and reading art and listening to music. Think instead of us as the as the uh, the evolved meat machine that uh, needs to consume things to steal its energy so that it can keep going. Okay. So the first step is analyze matter to see to what degree it can be consumed and then turned into energy. Yeah, and it turns out that the nose is actually a really huge part of being able to taste something, yeah. right? This is where it all begins. It's called orthonasal olfaction, and this is the smelling of the aromas from the outside of the mouth. Now, only 5 to 10% of the air you inhale while breathing reaches something called the olfactory epithelium, and that is located at the roof of the nasal cavity. Okay, uh, so if you're smell- smelling something uh, like across the room, you're not mm-hmm. necessarily tasting it. No, no. Um, it's really, the, the story here is that there's something at play that is really dictating how you taste food, and it's called retronasal olfaction. 
And uh, according to Mary Roach in her book, Gulp, uh, 80 to 90 percent of the sensory experience of eating is olfaction. And when food enters your mouth and it begins to break down the chemical composition to these aromatic gases, they then drift up into the posterior nares in the back of the mouth where they connect with olfactory receptors. So essentially, we've just had this forkful of haggis enter into the mouth, mm-hmm. and it's uh, all those aromas are going to the back of the throat and telling you how it is tasting before you're even able to masticate it and chew it. So this is step two. Is the meat machine ha- the meat machine has smelled the matter, found yeah. that it smells appetizing. Now we shall touch it with uh, taste buds and begin phase two of matter analysis. Yes, and I, and I love this quote uh, from Mary Rich's book. She says that taste is like a doorman for the digestive tract, a chemical scan for possible dangerous, bitter, sour elements and desirable salty, sweet nutrients. So um, she's talked about uh, some of the types of tastes that we, we have on our tongue here, and that is the sweet, bitter, salty, sour, and umami. Yeah, the, the brothy, uh, like a teriyaki kind of a flavor. Yeah, yeah, and that is what is lolling around your tongue. So, of course, you have to start really thinking about the tongue here. And it's not just a finger in your mouth directing food around, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. Um, the enzymes, actually, in the saliva begin to break food down. And we'll talk more about saliva in a moment. And they deliver them to this rough terrain on your tongue, which is covered in something called papillae. And that is where you have your taste bud receptors. And you have very, you've got a ton of them. You've got um, 50 to 100 taste cells in each taste bud receptor. And this I thought was really interesting when you compare it to a catfish. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the book, Gulp, Mary Roach talks about the catfish is essentially one big tongue. Yeah. It's like a swimming tongue. It comes up, it's rubbing up against something, it's tasting it. Um, because ultimately, when we're talking about about taste buds, these are just these are, these are just skin cells. These are modified skin cells that have specialized for a purpose. And uh, some some animals do not have taste buds, uh, as she mentions. Uh, the sperm whale, for instance, swallows stuff whole, so mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't need a doorman. Anybody can come in. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's no age restriction, height restriction, uh, etc. Everyone's welcome. Um, but uh, but then w- with uh, with humans, we are bringing things to our lips, so it makes sense for us to then have the taste uh, buds inside our mouth. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the catfish is swimming around in the muck, just tasting everything it touches. The uh, the housefly, as everyone knows, when it lands on something, it's tasting with its feet. Mm-hmm. There's no need for it to uh, to transfer the material to a secondary source. But, it's far more efficient, right? Yeah, far more efficient. Actually, I mean, if we if we happen to just land on our food, I'm sure the same. Sort of process would be at play. Well, can you imagine if everything we touched, we tasted? I, w- I tell uh, you, we would all have some very taste-neutral <laughs> gloves uh, and uh, and slacks in our life. Mardo would be uh, yeah. an entirely. I was crazy just trying experience. to imagine you as this overgrown fly on Marta, our uh, local train system. Well, every time I see somebody uh, spit gum. Um, on Marta, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're doing it appropriately into a trash can or inappropriately down into the tracks, I like to think, imagine if there was a um, a cursed piece of gum. When you're chewing it, it tastes uh, it tastes just like normal gum. But where it, when you spit it out, it basically becomes um, a taste receptor. And anything the gum t- touches, you taste for the rest of your life. That's awful. Yeah. But, and I, I see that it's a bit of a morality play going on yeah. here. But it's, uh, you know, and that would obviously be a, a crazy, um, unrealistic 
sense world that you would then inhabit. But these uh, these real world examples here we're looking at the uh, um, the catfish, uh, the housefly, they live in a in a sense world we can scarcely imagine. You know, because for us, taste is this thing we we only uh, drag out when we need it. We only uh, unleash it on the world when we need it. But with the catfish, the the taste is its means of connecting with the world around it. Okay, so let's imagine that this gum did sort of assume the place of a tongue, right? Mm-hmm. This this poor discarded piece of gum at the bottom of the tracks here at the train station. Uh, it would then send taste receptor signals to your brain still, mm-hmm. picking up on, let's say, um, let's say there's a dog there and it peed on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of that uraic acid to the brain. And then your brain would say, oh, man, I think that I have tasted this before. Oh, God, this is disgusting. Or if you're Robert Burns and you're like, oh, that, maybe that's a bit like a haggis. Yeah. Um, that's the cool thing that's going on here is that your tongue is delivering all of these sensory uh, inputs here. And then your brain is doing a scan and trying to match its past history, but also trying to figure out whether or not it's dangerous. Yes. And then, of course, you're combining that with smell, which is an even larger database. But, of course, uh, the, the sense of smell is interesting in that it uh, it's not something we, we really think about consciously. It doesn't mm-hmm. really connect with us consciously, but it, it goes directly to the brain, and it's more of an emotional memory response, which is why you're walking down the street, you smell like a weird smell, and you'll be like super nostalgic about it, and uh, and you don't really know why. But uh, taste receptors, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention that Mary Roach points out is that we don't just have them in our mouth. We have uh, taste receptors in the gut, mm-hmm. in the upper esophagus, in the voice box. But the, the tongue's buds are the only ones that are hardwired to, uh, to our consciousness. Right. Uh, which is good. Right, because <laughs> otherwise you would be picking up on taste like bile. Yeah. But, and if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you have, or when you have these, uh, receptors in the gut sensing things, it's more to try to figure out if there's a bitter, uh, component to that morsel of food to make mm-hmm. sure that it's not something that's dangerous. Yes, or in some cases too, it's it's tied into hormonal responses right. as well. But uh, but then also it's easy to say, oh well, if I had a if I had uh, these taste receptors activated in my gut, if they were actually hooked up to my conscious mind, then I would probably be thinking, oh, that tastes gross. But but it, I can only imagine that if you could consciously taste with your gut, then the right things would taste right. You know what I'm saying? Like. It's uh, it's easy to get caught up in taste when we're thinking about not only uh, taste as a human experience, but taste uh, in other animals, other species, mm-hmm. to think of it from this sort of closed-minded perspective of the things that taste good to us and the things that don't taste good to us. But then, but ultimately, as we said at the, the start, it's it's chemical analysis. It's analysis of matter to see if it is appropriate for transformance into food. It's energy. true, and it's true, and all of this chemical uh, process is happening on your tongue, which, by the way, is the hardest working muscle in your mouth. Yes. Because even when you're sleeping, it's still pushing saliva around and making sure that everything is working properly. Um, and I can't help but keep thinking about the tongue parasite. Uh, do you remember the uh, Samotha exigua? Um, yes. That takes over the, a certain fish's tongue. Yeah, it replaces it. Replaces just it. eats it out and then just squats there on the, the, the tongue stump. Kind of connects in and, yeah, becomes the tongue. It becomes the tongue. And I can't help but think it probably does not care about taste at this point. But surely it has some sort of sensory device in place to make sure that whatever it's picking up isn't dangerous for it. A tongue within a tongue. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will uh, do some more exploration in the mouth or gnashing of teeth
All right, we're back. So uh, again, we're at the we're at base camp for the uh, intestinal journey uh, that goes from uh, snout to sphincter, as they say. So uh, we've talked about the tongue. We have uh, we've talked about smell and how that plays into uh, the uh, chemical analysis of uh, matter that we are going to transform into energy. So it is time to talk about the teeth and talk about the jaw, our means of mastication. Yeah, and before we can even talk about that, I have to give a shout-out to the old Ordovician period. Oh, yeah? Yeah, uh, because this is uh, when our early vertebrate ancestors actually transformed their gill arches into jaws. We're talking about 480 million years ago. But if that had not happened, we wouldn't even have the ability to to gnash our teeth and to break things down and be so successful Ah, as a species, right? So the next time you you wake and your jaw is sore from from gnashing your teeth all night, then uh, you can thank these uh, ancient critters. Yeah, or if you're listening to us right now, grabbing some lunch or some dinner, mm-hmm. you know, keep that in mind. And also keep in mind, this is really cool, and again, this is a revelation from the book Gulp by Mary Roach, that the way you chew is unique to you. Um, here, let me just uh, grab this little quote here. It says, there are fast chewers and slow chewers, long chewers and short chewers, Right-chewing people and left-chewing people. Some of us chew straight up and down, and others chew side to side like cows. Your oral processing habits are a physiological fingerprint. Yeah, that's crazy. I never thought about that. I mean, I obviously, I've watched enough uh, police investigation shows to know that uh, you know everyone's bite, is, their bite marks are individual to them and can be uh, used to uh, to figure out exactly who bit who. But uh, but chewing as well, we each have a chew fingerprint. Yeah. So you have any unique chewing characteristics? No, I I get the job done, but that's about (laughs) as as much as I think about it. I know. Well, I know that I chew on my left side just because I have a dental problem on my right side that I haven't taken care of. But um, it's kind of interesting to know that everybody has a a different kind of chewing rhythm going Mm -hmm. on. And I think that speaks to this idea that our teeth are so much more sensitive than we realize and are doing this job. They can actually detect a grain of sand or grit 10 microns in diameter. And Mary Roach says that uh, a micron is one twenty-fifth thousand of an inch. And if you shrank a Coke can until it was the diameter of a human hair, the letter O in the product name would be about 10 microns across. Just to give you an idea of how sensitive your teeth are to what's in your mouth. Yeah, it's crazy when you think about it. Um, Like, I, I often... Think back to the the, the comparison between, uh, say, a chimpanzee's uh, muscles and and a human's muscles. Mm-hmm. A chimpanzee has uh, has more brute strength, like tremendous more brute strength than a human, but a human has uh, has more dexterity. And uh, when, but when you when you look at, at the human mouth, there is so much delicacy to what we can do with mm-hmm. it, and just so much unnerving power, <laughs> you yeah. know. And you think about the things we stick in it. Um, you know, fingers, what have you, or just the fact that our teeth are touching each other. I mean, if 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 you like me have uh, had any experience grinding your teeth at night, you know how how uh, self destructive the uh, the the system can be when it's not uh, not working properly because there's just it's a it's a powerful set of jaws you have there. Yeah, and your teeth are sitting there sort of like the levee for your mouth too. Yeah. Because if they weren't there, then you'd have a bunch of saliva sort of drooling out like a one year old does. So, yeah, I mean, that that's very cool that the teeth are that sensitive. And then your jaw muscles are that sensitive, too. Mm-hmm. As, you, if you, as you said, there's a lot of power going on there. And in terms of pressure per single burst of activity, 
the jaw muscles are the strongest muscles that we have. Yeah, and you don't even think about them being muscles <laughs> for the most part. I mean, even right. when they're kind of sore, like, like I'll find that, like, I, I challenge anyone out there who's not driving right now to reach up and kind of gently massage your jaw muscles to remind yourself that they are there. And you'll, you really start to go, oh, wow, you know, there's actually some, some stiffness, some soreness up in there. And, uh, it's, uh, it, I mean, uh, it's, there's a, just a lot of muscle. This feels delightful, by the way. It does, yeah. Do it if you want to, you need to relax, rub your, uh, your jaw muscles a little bit. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you've got all the mechanics going on. So you've got all of that pressure per single burst going on if you're mm-hmm. chewing something. And it's really amazing that you have that amount of pressure and yet your jaw can sense and ease up at the precise moment that it needs to to make sure it doesn't come crashing down together. Yeah, you can uh, like you can pop a grape, you can crunch a nut in your mouth and not then destroy the teeth that are crashing together or anything. Yeah, I believe Mary Roach also points out that anytime you're, you're crunching something in your mouth, like that's a tiny sonic boom taking place inside your skull. Yeah, she calls it the physics of eating, and it's really cool because mm-hmm. your brain is uh, it's trying to get all these auditory clues about what's going on as well. So it, you know, it's taking in the input about the taste, the smell, but then yeah, you've got the cellular walls of say like the grape you said popping mm-hmm. in your mouth, breaking down, making that sonic boom, and telling you that this is something that's really fresh. It's a fresh yes. produce. It's not rotting and on its way out. And it's not harmful. So even something like that, that tiny little detail is being processed. Yeah, that's why we love crunchy things. That's why people can eat potato chips all day. Uh, because the, the crunch, even though the potato chip itself is horrible for you, the crunch is, is, is communicating with your uh, primordial wiring. And you're thinking, ah, oh, fresh food, fresh food, fresh food, as you can't stop, you know, popping them. As you layer on processed food after processed food into your mouth. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it really gets into why texture is so important in food. In our 3D printing uh, episode, uh, actually part two of the 3D, epi- uh, 3D printing episode, I believe, we talked about uh, the challenges, some of the challenges of printing food and how they've basically sort of uh, tabled the physical printing until they can get the taste sensations right. Mm-hmm. But like that would be one of the big challenges is making sure that you have the right array of, of crispness and uh, and other textures. It's why uh, for me sushi is so amazing because you have you can you have so many different textures going on in the food product. Mm-hmm. That it's not just the taste, but the the textual. It's not just the taste, but the the textures you experience as you eat it. Yeah, and uh, there's a great chapter. That is sort of tangential here, but it talks about pet food. Oh, God, that is an amazing chapter. Yeah, and it talks about the palatants that are added to it. Essentially, yeah. the palatants are what make it um, enticing to cats and dogs. Yeah, it's like a, a liquid layer, or in some cases, it's powdered on. And mm-hmm. one of the, the guys that she talks to, he was previously in the uh, um, the Cheetos business, I think, mm-hmm. or the Fritos, one of the O's of chips, where, of course, you have a, a standard sort of corn, mush, dried husk of a thing but then it's coated with uh with some sort of delicious dust or uh, or 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 liquid to make it into a non-stop snack sensation right but so they get the texture first they get right? the texture first and if you just eat the un uh, uh the un a uh, naked cheeto. Uh, yeah, just a naked cheeto then it's it's gonna have no flavor it's just like eating cardboard but you put the flavor on it and then people can't resist it and it's the same thing with pet food And I think it's so interesting that it goes back to this idea of our brain clocking the physics, again, of the food. Like, is is the food uh, ripe? Is the the fruit good? Is the the produce 
fresh? Is it going to make that sonic boom that my brain knows is healthy? And then somehow that sort of got warped into the processed food landscape. Yeah. That chapter has been uh, one of my favorites that I've, I've read in the book thus far. It um, Because it also helps sort of show how every animal lives in a, in a different sense world mm-hmm. um, and, and how silly it is to apply a human uh, or even individualized uh, human uh, taste um, expectations to other things. For instance, the palatant for cat food that Mary Roach tastes, she says it basically has no flavor. But it's the but it's the the flavor coating that drives cats bananas. So the thing that cats love tasting the most, we can't even really perceive. Which is funny when you think about those. I think it's Fancy Feast those commercials mm-hmm. where they serve up um, the the meal to a big white fluffy cat in a crystal bowl. Yeah, you know we can't help but project on you know to yeah. that cat like you want fifteen different flavors, you want choices, and and no cats don't want choices as she points out. It is cat owners can uh, can also uh, attest to cats don't want want it mixed up they want the same thing even uh, domestic uh, cats that are eating uh, uh, wild animals uh, Mary Roach points out that uh, they tend to be either birders or mousers mm-hmm. um, and that helps to dictate what their preferences and food choices right yeah exactly uh, and, and to, to your point too I mean the whole thing about the, the dog food cat food industry is you're selling a product for animals but you're selling it to humans so you have to find that uh, that that crossover between the two tastes. You have to find stuff that smells gross enough that dogs love it, but not so gross that humans don't want to be around it. You have to market to humans who want the the best healthy food for their uh, for their pet that, that that have it in their mind that they need a steak dinner when really they just want to eat the delicious guts out of something. Or on the other side of that, um, where there's vegetarian kibble available for cats and dogs. Yes. When in fact, especially for a cat, you know the the diet is a meat based diet. Yeah, one hundred percent carnivore, OG carnivore. They don't want veggies. And, you know, they'll nibble on a little wheat grass when they need a vomit, but that's about it. But it's really interesting to see it from this uh, side, the marketing side and the psychological side. Um, <clears throat> one of my other favorite chapters that Mary Rich has is sort of an ode to saliva. Yes. And I thought that was wonderful because, really, it is a big player, not just in breaking down our food, but in other ways. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Okay, so another really great chapter that Mary Rich has is... Basically, an ode to saliva. And I'm glad that she has this chapter because there's so much going on in your saliva. And we had touched on it briefly when we talked about regurgitation celebration and we talked about vultures. Yes. Uh, but it is an amazing substance. Yeah. So, yeah, we're talking about spit here, of course. And as, uh, as everyone knows, spit is not just water. I mean, it's 98% water, but there are some other important things going on. And it's, you know, it, think about it. Like, you know, what is it for? Is it, it, it's not just a matter of keeping your mouth wet. It's also about getting the food wet, breaking down the food a little bit in your mouth before it goes down. Basically, it's involved in creating the bolus. Uh, so, again, think back to the human body as the meat machine that must uh, transform other matter into energy. So it has smelled the food and found it appetizing. It has tasted the food and found it appetizing. So the next step, of course, is to chew it up, break it down into smaller pieces, get it all nice and wet and mucky, and transform it into a package that can then be sent down the uh, gut highway. And this is the bolus, right? Yes. The, this uh, ball of food, this mass of masticated mess. Masticated meat pudding, if you will. <laughs> yeah, especially with the haggis, right? So what I love about what 
it's made up of is that it's just so wildly different. So, yes, it is mostly water. Mm-hmm. But you do have electrolytes. You have antibacterial compounds, enzymes, which we'll talk about. And then mucin, mucus, really. Yeah. And the reason why you have this mucus in your saliva or this mucin is because you need it to be uh, viscous. You need it to be able to travel well because it can then deliver all of those flavors and um, bits and morsels of your food to your tongue to give it, again, the the sort of um, landscape that it needs to tell your brain, hey, this is what this is. Because if you had a dry tongue, you wouldn't be able to taste anything, essentially. Sorry, I was thinking about my tongue. That's it. Sets there and twitches. <laughs> Let me tell you about other, I think, superhero properties of saliva. It helps to return pH levels to normal in your mouth, and that's mm-hmm. really important because, of course, you've got enamel on your teeth. You don't want it to be eaten away by something. So let's say that you drank uh, something like orange juice, which is very acidic, and the pH levels are high, and you drank it you know, morning, noon, and night, couldn't get enough of it. Um, thankfully, when you do that, the saliva actually increases and it helps to reduce that pH level and make it safe inside of your mouth uh, for your teeth actually to exist and not just crumble away. Yeah, I mean, it's important really to give your uh, your mouth a little me time sometimes. You know, by what <laughs> I mean by that is you've eaten breakfast, you've brushed your teeth and all that, you know, you've mouthwashed and you've given, it's been 30 minutes since you've uh, had your mouth washed and maybe even an hour. Doesn't mean you need to jump right back into snacks and then brush your teeth. Like, let your mouth have a little, just normal time to, to sort of settle. Yeah, especially when you consider that uh, your your mouth, or actually your parotid gland, produces about three pints of saliva a day. And 70 to 90% of that saliva is something called stimulated saliva. Mm-hmm. So it's working overtime, trying to break things down for you. Yeah, it needs a little me time. It's important stuff. Don't just spit it in, on the train station. You know, I always, I'm, that's another thing. I'm, if people aren't spitting gum, then they're just spitting. One, yesterday, a dude was on the train, seated. Train came to a stop. He got up from his seat, went up to the doors when they opened, spit out of the train, and then returned to his seat, which on one hand, he was nice enough to spit out of the train at a stop, but still, it's like how, what what needed out that bad? Well, you know, it's interesting, and this comes up in Gulp in the book, is that it is cultural. So if you go to certain countries, they find it disgusting to spit into a cloth because, you know, let's say they're trying to hawk up presumably some phlegm mm-hmm. from their body and spit that out, they think it's disgusting to keep that in something. So why not just spit it out? Why would you collect it in just, a vessel? Yeah, I guess. And certainly people, I see people that seem to think that on uh, public transportation. They spit it just directly onto the, the tiles. Right. They don't really have excuses because they're not in a different country. Uh, or maybe, I don't know, maybe they're from another country and they think they're just doing the thing they're supposed to do. The other thing I want to talk about in terms of spit, and yes, don't just go spit it everywhere because it really is kind of like liquid gold. Um, I mean, I guess it's very macho too. Like, like we were mentioning uh, Cormac McCarthy in a recent uh, podcast. Read a Cormac McCarthy book with a bunch of cowboys in it. The people are just spitting like crazy. Every every line of dialogue, somebody spits. But every time they do that, these wonderful enzymes are being released, and unless they're um, being used for a purpose, they're just splattering to the ground, yeah. then these enzymes aren't doing anything. Well, yeah, it's, it's a waste of, uh, of, of important resources, I, which is why I like uh, in the Dune universe among the, uh, the freemen, I uh, like to, to spit. You know, that's uh, it's a big deal if you're going to spit or, or weep or something, because there's a precious uh, liquids you're leaving there. Well, yeah, because the saliva has anti-clumping properties, mm-hmm. and that discourages bacteria from rounding itself up and adhering to your teeth and gums and creating colonies. 
And uh, it also is something that uh, helps to heal wounds a yeah. lot quicker. So you'll see, again, in other cultures, like, for instance, in Greece, you'll see someone sort of spit on their kid's wound or, um, you know, apply spit in other areas of use. And that's because, again, these antimicrobial properties that it possesses. Well, you, we mentioned in a previous uh, episode, I believe it was the vulture vomit one, mm-hmm. about the um, the studies that are going into um, looking at mothers who chew their food, human mothers who chew yeah. their food for their, their, their children. And the idea there is that you're, it's the spit is the key to it. Well, yeah, you're the human blender for them, but also you're coating something that could be highly allergenic. Mm-hmm. Um, you're coating those proteins and with that saliva, and you're making it less allergenic for the child. So in a way, it's protecting the child as well. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to leave this area of uh, this topic by looking at our laundry detergent. Because this is a great little tidbit that came up in the book. And I thought it was great. Mary Roach had said, okay, if your saliva has enzymes like amylase, which breaks down starches to sugars, lipase, which breaks down fats, and protease, which breaks down protein, this sounds a lot like what's going on in your laundry, in your laundry detergent. And she did confirm that, in fact, two of these... Uh, are actually used in laundry detergent. And she says that laundry detergent is essentially a digestive tract in a box. Huh. So powerful is that saliva. Wow. I'm not suggesting everybody just start spinning into the washing (laughs) machines now. But, you know, the next time you have a little stain on your shirt, don't hesitate. You know, rub a little spit into it, see what happens. All right, well, there you go. There's there's base camp. For the uh, the journey through the human body, um, hopefully we will uh, we'll we'll come back and continue this journey in future episodes, and uh, and take you the rest of the way. It it only gets crazier from here. Uh, so when you say crazy, I think you mean flatulence. Well, that's going to happen eventually, but uh, there's it always just, does. There's just a whole world. It's a Lord of the Rings esque uh, uh, journey ahead of us through the human body. All right. I'm up for it. All right. Well, on that note, let's call over uh, the robot and uh, get a little listener mail. All right. So we are uh, we are currently, in the, as I'm reading this, we have received some emails regarding part one of the printer of the gods episode, the 3D printer of the gods episode. But part two has not currently aired yet. Mm-hmm. So the the emails that I have that uh, respond to that, just bear in mind that they haven't heard part two. So. First, I uh, want to mention that we uh, we heard from uh, a listener by the name of Lise. Uh, Lise writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. Just listened to your 3D printing episode. It's interesting stuff, some of which I really hadn't considered before. Dita Von Teese's dress was amazing, and the potential for custom fitting is very cool. I have a comment in particular about the article on Warhammer miniatures that Robert cited. I haven't played Warhammer in particular, but I started playing D&D, that's Dungeons & Dragons, uh, for you. <laughs> novices out there, uh, in the late 1970s, and I worked in a gaming store in the early to mid-1980s, and I feel pretty comfortable saying that the article missed the point about miniatures. Not only have people always painted them, there is always a long history of altering them, in some cases re-sculpting them to amazing degrees, um, with files and, and epoxy, and in some cases blowtorches. We're talking about lead miniatures here, not the resin which Games Workshop uses today. True, I don't know anyone who built one from scratch, but there are all sorts of people who have unique miniatures which don't resemble the base models at all. It's not merely the game changer you portray it as, at least in the field of miniature gaming. 
Likewise, as far as customizing all sorts of things and the MySpace effect, I think it's odd to assert that this begins and ends with 3D printing. All sorts of people can and do customize off-the-rack clothing, for example, and have done so for years. There are even people who make their own clothing from scratch. You might say that 3D printing makes it easier to do that, but even without ever actually having uh, played with a 3D printer CAD file, I'd be willing to bet it still takes skill and patience and trial and error to get it right. Although 3D printing provides new and interesting materials to play with, and uh, and it may spark a fad in really individual and funky clothing for a while, I find it hard to think that it will usher in a new era of mass individual expression. Most of the masses just don't want to put in that much work. If they did, uh, they wouldn't have waited for 3D printing to do it. What it will do is provide a different type of outlet for that really small fraction of the people who like to make and or customize their stuff. Cool. Well, some uh, interesting thoughts there from uh, from Lise. Uh, now, I do want to note that uh, Warhammer article that I um, I cited. They do go into the customization uh, a little bit because uh, certainly with uh, with miniature gaming uh, today and you know in, in its earlier days as well, you'll have individuals who buy the miniature, and the miniature at the very least comes unassembled and unpainted. So there are various style choices that are going to come there, especially if it has multiple parts. Uh, like, likewise, you can then do various things to it. You can use some uh, some putty, some uh, some various other materials to change it and make it into the thing you want. Uh, customization. So that that's uh, to our point. That is an important part of a miniature hobbyist. Uh, but I'll, and also, uh, it, it's again worth noting that yes, we do have the ability to alter our uh, our products already. Uh, you can you can buy clothing off the rack and then alter them if you have the skill set to do it. But I, I still think it's gonna it's gonna change things. But we'll see how it goes. But uh, most of the sources I was looking at, maybe they were overselling the idea in some cases. But uh, I think it really would be a game changer. I think it's a it was a good analogy for for looking at the macro and micro of uh, its abilities to change the sort of objects we put out in the world. That's just me talking from my allergy medicine. There you go. <laughs> Cool. Uh, I also want to mention uh, we we did receive at least one comment from someone who um, wasn't sure exactly where uh, we stood on this whole uh, exchange of ideas that we see on the internet and we'll eventually oh, right. see in 3D printing. So we brought a uh, intellectual property, right? Just as an idea that here's another way in which uh, intellectual property has not been defined to such a degree that you might have some people who were taking advantage of it. Maybe not. We don't know. It's just a question mark. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about freedom is that you, freedom gives you the power to create things. It also has, it gives you the ability to, uh, to do some, uh, some less advantageous things. And, uh, the example uh, I was making in the, the podcast was that certainly with the internet now, you can go out and you can steal something that is somebody's pretty solid intellectual property. And then if we have, with, with the age of 3D printers, We'll be able to steal a physical object more or less. So that was sort of the analogy we were making, but certainly not, Every form of sharing on the internet is uh, is stealing. Just to right, be clear and I that. think that we're still at a point where we're trying to figure out what is stealing, what is sharing, what is fair use, and uh, as we had pointed out, I think in the podcast before, oftentimes technology is way ahead of those sort of issues anyway. Cool. And then I have just uh, three quick uh, Facebook uh, comments I wanted to read. Uh, this first one comes from Meg. Meg uh, says, listening to the 3D printer podcast while at work as a miniature painter for Privateer Press, this is the first podcast I've listened to at work that's been relevant to my job. Looking forward to hearing more from you guys. Uh, we also heard from uh, from Critter. Uh, I don't think this is Critter Jones, unless Critter Jones has a new last name. So, But okay. maybe we have two listeners named Critter. Either way, I, I, I like that. Uh, Critter writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I just listened to the interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it blew my mind. I just love hearing him talk, uh, and so many of the questions were in the realm of what if 
uh, it was interesting to hear him take them on. He's so intellectually honest. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed the episode. Please have more scientific guests on as often as you can. I'd love to hear you speak with Brian Cox, certainly, uh, perhaps about the dark matter energy issue and Oliver Sacks, a la Leprechaun Hallucinations. I found them to be fascinating people to hear. Thanks, and keep up the mindful work. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. actually, we have a, an interview with Maria Roach on the books here, so yeah. pretty soon we'll roll that out for you guys, and we hope that you enjoy it as well. Yeah, and if uh, yeah, everyone continues to like the interviews and they uh, perform well, certainly we love talking to uh, to experts, so we will uh, we'll try and bring some more on the podcast and uh, maybe some video stuff as well. And finally, we heard from Chuck, and Chuck, uh, in responding to the 3D printer, says... Uh, Josh and Chuck? No, not Josh and Chuck. It's a different Chuck. There are more Chucks. Uh, just as there are more critters out there. Uh, Chuck says, uh, cool episode, guys, uh, but please uh, get the firearms t- uh, terminology right. Unless you are talking about black powder pistols, all guns are semi-automatic. I think the term you wanted to, uh, to refer to was fully automatic. It's the difference between pulling the trigger and firing one round and pulling the trigger and firing multiple rounds. That totally was not Chuck Bryant. That was not yeah. Chuck Bryant. No, actually, thank you for the distinction. That's really important. Yeah, totally. Uh, so... There you have it, a uh, little listener mail there. We thank you, thank the robot, as always, for bringing them over to us. Uh, and if you would like to reach out to us uh, and share your thoughts on uh, the mouth, on the tongue, on taste, on how cats taste. Haggis. Haggis. Um, anything we talked about in this episode, let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr. We are stuffed to blow your mind on both of those. You can find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And uh, be sure to visit our new website. We have a website at www.stufftoblowyourmind.com. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind@discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>